0: I spent five years in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, a place I didn't even know existed until I moved there to attend graduate school. We were so far north that my blackness was more a curiosity than threat. I was a woman out of place, but I did not always feel unsafe. Hello,
1: and welcome to Personal Disclosures. I'm Nancy Beckett, and I'm your host. Eight people signed up for one of my humorous writing classes here in Chicago at the Second City Training Center, where I've taught for more than 15 years. They entertained the hell out of each other, bonded and shared secrets they'd never told anyone. And now they're revealing their truth to you. These stories have so much meaning and quality because they are written. I mean, people are a huge pain in the ass, generally speaking myself included, and they'll bore you to death if you let them. But in these episodes, what you'll discover is how interesting people actually are on paper. It'll surprise you, and you're going to want more. So please, go to our website at personaldisclosures.com. See more of us, tell us what you think, and disclose some of your own truth, why don't you? Okay, so here's how it's going to go. After one person reads a personal disclosure, we're going to riff, we're going to cross-talk, we're going to get crazy and funny and contradict each other, and then we're going to move on. You're not going to know who's talking in these commentaries. That's okay. There's nothing you're going to miss. Just listen to the things that people say to one another as writers in a room reading together. And after a couple of episodes, you'll know who we are. This episode we've titled, Immigration, Assimilation, and Alienation. I think you'll find that you don't have to come from somewhere else to be different. It turns out that, obviously, we're all sharing so much more in common than we are separate but that's what we focus on i hope you enjoy hearing about the people who have relatives that are from another world and uh, the people who felt like they were just on another planet all by themselves and be sure to listen all the way through because we have a special guest you're really gonna enjoy Vince Pagan is one of the best almost 30-somethings I know. He's a guest of ours tonight because he's worked in the youth program at the Second City, our sponsor, and with the Illinois Safe School Initiative. And he also works with LBGT Kids. In addition, he has quite a thriving business, thank you very much, as a baker. And he does storytelling and quite a bit of his own writing throughout Chicago. He's been a member of the Second Story Collective. He's a triple threat. He's a guy that works the work. And he tells an amazing story.
2: I was spread out on my bed filling out invitations for my 11th birthday party at Rainbow Roller Rink when my mom popped her head into my room and handed me a large red book. I ran my hand across the cover and shiny letters that said, Treasury of Christmas, the gold-leafed page edging and the never-cracked binding. Pushing the invitations aside, I opened it to the table of contents. Mom smiled and quietly left, leaving me to my own devices. Flipping through the pages, I stopped every so often on recipes like orange-glazed carrots and roasted turkey with sage and hazelnut stuffing, but really beelining to the sweets towards the back of the book. I'd practically memorized our well-worn VHS of the everyday gourmets, chocolate, and other divine desserts, so I was overdue for some new source material. I was delighted to find tons of pudding, cookie, and cake recipes on the glossy pages, making my mouth water while I decided which one I was going to make first. The recipes used ingredients like buttermilk, pastry flour, and cream of tartar, and unfamiliar instructions like whip until stiff peaks form. (laughs) (laughs) I stopped on one of the recipes with a picture that took up a whole page a handful of cookies that looked like the tiny versions of the empanadas grandma made for Christmas except Mm. instead of meat there was caramel oozing from the slits at the top not that many ingredients I thought powdered sugar, butter, flour, caramel only a few instructions but I definitely didn't want to wait for Christmas to make them that was months away and I suddenly had the best idea ever my family lived in Hermosa, a quiet neighborhood that most people have never heard of, near Cicero and Diversey. Most of my classmates lived in neighborhoods like Edgewater, Rogers Park, and Lakeview. Because I lived so far away, very few classmates came to my birthday parties, even though I made a point to invite everyone every year. Most of my classmates' parents had jobs like doctor, judge, or TV producer. I was the child of a physical therapy assistant and sheet steel factory worker who chose to have opposite schedules so that one of them would be home with us in the morning to go to school and the others could take my sister and me to our after school stuff. My parents didn't know any of the other parents who came to all of the during the day stuff at school, but even when they were there, I don't remember the other parents being very friendly. Before I learned to love my curly hair and brown skin, I was embarrassed of both. And the clear wage gap between many of my classmates' family and mine was just another thing to add to the list of things that made me different. Things that I could imagine my classmates were saying at recess and lunch when I saw them hanging out on the playground, while I looked on from the perimeter with the few friends I had who looked like me. And as if all of this weren't enough, my birthday treat game was never up to snuff. See... (laughs) At my grade school, each kid brought in treats for the class on their birthday, and the other kids and their parents showed up. Every year, like clockwork, Kate brought in cookies from Swedish Bakery, which people went out of their minds for. I had no idea what Swedish Bakery was, other than the obvious fact that it was Swedish and a bakery. One Halloween, Gabby brought these little bread cream cheese things in, the shape of sugar skulls with raisins for eyes, which her mom obviously helped her with. And Leslie once brought in lychee jellies from her trip to Thailand. Literally, how is anyone supposed to compete with that? And year after year, I rolled in on October 6th with Jewel Cup, cakes, a package of Oreos, or whatever my mom or dad had time to grab before work or after school. These were treats that no one got excited about, which I blame Leslie and her lychee jellies for. (laughs) But not this year, I thought, stroking the glossy page and rereading the recipe. This year, I was going to bring these cookies and knock their freaking socks off. (laughs) Jenny Lee walked past me one day on her way to the bathroom. Hey, Jenny, I said, you know, it's my birthday next Wednesday. That's cool, she said. What are you bringing for your birthday treat? (laughs) Oh, just these cookies I'm making that are like little coconut caramel pies. Caramel and coconut, huh? Hope it doesn't get stuck in my braces. (laughs) She tossed her hair and walked away. She hoped it didn't get stuck in her braces, which meant she was totally jazzed about my birthday treats, which (laughs) meant that this plan was totally going to work. And since news travels fast in a fifth grade classroom, by the end of that day, everyone was expecting those delicious cookies. On the night of October 5th, mom gave me the ingredients, asked me to please not burn the house down and left with Diana to go to ballet. I stood in front of the treasury of Christmas, my kitchen table filled edge to edge with everything I'd need to make the best birthday treats room 214 had ever seen. I got to work. Place flour, powdered sugar, baking powder, and salt in a large bowl. Stir to combine. (laughs) Simple enough, I said out loud to myself. I carefully measured and combined the dry ingredients in one of the big bowls mom had taken down for me. My small hands were clumsier then than they are now, and soon I dropped half a cup of flour on the floor. Worry about it later and start on the (laughs) butter before it melts, I said to myself. Cut the butter into the flour mixture with a pastry blender or two knives until the mixture forms pea-sized pieces. Not knowing what a pastry blender was, I grabbed two butter knives, which seemed appropriate, and started to cut through the flour and butter. Not much was happening, but the pieces were getting smaller. Add ice water, one tablespoon at a time, and toss with a fork until the mixture holds together. I looked at the dry pile of flour and butter chunks in the bowl in front of me. Then I double-checked the amount of water. Six tablespoons. I was skeptical that this dribble of water was going to do much to turn this chunky mess into dough, but I wasn't one to go against instructions, so I carefully poured the water and started blending the dough together with a fork until I convinced myself that it would come together perfectly when it chilled. Divide dough in half, cover and refrigerate 30 minutes or until firm. Done. Nailed it. The first big step was finished. I checked the book. Meanwhile, melt caramels and milk in medium saucepan over low heat, stirring constantly. Stir in coconut, remove from heat, cool. I opened the bag of caramels and realized that each one was individually wrapped. (laughs) Not sure how many I'd need, I just unwrapped all of them, placing each one back into the bag when I was done. Adding the milk to the melted caramels, I stirred the pot's contents slowly, pulling the spoon out and setting it near the cookbook, dripping bits of caramel on its pages. Mm -hmm. Once I'd added the coconut, I was relieved to see that this at least looked exactly how I thought it should. And then I suddenly remembered the dough. It had been chilling for 45 minutes instead of the 30 the book had said. I wondered if the extra 15 minutes in the fridge was the reason the dough had become a lump the consistency of a very soft boulder, or whether something had (laughs) gone wrong in an earlier step, but I pressed on. I turned the dough out onto my very lightly floured table and took the rolling pin to it, which promptly broke the lump in half and made one of the pieces crumble. Fix it later, Vinny, I said to myself, wiping sweat from my forehead. Get the first few done. Working with one portion at a time, roll out dough on lightly floured surface to 1 8 inch thickness. I looked at the portion that hadn't turned back to butter, flour, and sugar bits. This clump didn't look very big, but I rolled it anyway. 1 8 inch thickness. What is that, like this big? I mean, it did have to be thick enough to hold the filling. Cut dough with 3 inch round cookie cutter. I looked at the one 3-inch disk of dough that rolling it this big had gotten me and wondered how that was supposed to make two dozen cookies. It looked so dry that it might fall apart at any second. The more I tried to manipulate the dough to make it bigger, the more it fell apart. I went over to check on the caramel that I was supposed to be stirring frequently and it had stiffened at the bottom of the pan. I grabbed the other half bag of caramels to try again and realized that I'd grabbed the bag upside down when every last unwrapped caramel fell to the ground. I looked at the mess around me. Flour all over the tables and floors, puddles of caramel all over the stove, the remains of the other half of the dough crumbled and falling off of the counter. It was 9.30. With no more caramel, half the butter I'd need, and a 10 o'clock bedtime, there was no way this was happening. I'd have to admit defeat and show up to school empty-handed. I cleaned up as much as I could and went to bed before mom and Diana got home from ballet. Two fewer people I'd have to tell that I'd failed. October sixth, my eleventh birthday. I didn't want to get out of bed. My flour-dusted and caramel-dripped clothes were sitting on the ground next to me. The ride to school was quiet. Mom must have told Dad that she saw mostly clean dishes and no cookies and a dough-like lump in the trash because he pulled into Jewel, went in, and came out with a couple of boxes of Little Debbie oatmeal pies, which, <laughs> while delicious, were a far <laughs> cry from what I'd bragged about bringing the week before. <laughs> At the end of the day, while my class sang happy birthday, I went to the coat closet and could feel 30 pairs of eyes on me. I gave the oatmeal pies to Miss Grant to hand out and sunk down into my seat. At the table behind me, I could hear someone whispering, I thought he was going to bring those cookies he was going to make. Yeah, Jenny Lee whispered back. I didn't think he was gonna anyway. It's August 2017, and I'm sitting in front of a room of 11 to 13-year-olds, telling them how I went from the cookie fiasco of 1999 to starting my own baking business almost 20 years later. Those kids were mean, one of the students says, and dumb. Those oatmeal pies are delicious. (laughs) Yeah, it's not your fault your mom couldn't help you. Who else was going to take your sister to ballet? You're right, I say. Eventually, I taught myself how to do it, and I'm very proud of that. One student interjects, did you ever make those cookies? I shake my head. A teacher asks why, and my heart sinks. I have no idea where the book is. Can't you make up a recipe? No, Jamal, he has to make those exact ones. Duh. (laughs) Do you remember the last time you saw it? Obviously, if he would remember that, he would remember where it was, Sarah. (laughs) But suddenly, I do remember, and a couple of hours later, I'm in my best friend's living room rummaging through a shelf. What is it that you're looking for? She asks me. I left it here that time in high school when we made Swedish meatballs for Grandma Betty's birthday. It's the size of a textbook. It's got gold-edged pages. There it is, covered in dust and hiding behind a 20-year-old copy of a Tom Patterson novel, exactly (laughs) as I remember it. I start flipping through the pages. Orange glazed carrots, roasted turkey with sage and hazelnut stuffing, and on page 464, Argentinian caramel-filled crescents. (laughs) The page is caked in little bits of caramel and flour. My holiday menu came out the day after Thanksgiving that year, and these cookies were right at the top. Thank you.
3: Yeah. yeah.
1: Woo. <sighs> wow. That's a heartbreaker, that one. Yeah. The story is its own kind of redemption about losses. Yeah,
3: that's
2: my favorite thing about this piece, was how you managed to almost make your story an oatmeal pie like you, you start with like the mean kids and you end with the kids but this time they're nice
3: and i think it's relatable too to anyone that so has relatable. like two working parents too yeah like you're gonna figure it out for yourself or yeah. anyone yeah, that's too. ever
4: failed at any yeah yeah,
2: yeah.
4: fucking jenny lee
2: I'm saying and you know she pops up every so often oh, and you I know, try, are friends? yeah I, no I'm Vlog not friends her. with her she's one of the big I, people you should know yeah yeah so she she pops up on my social media she's sending she, her a box of
5: cookies not, yeah. to, <laughs> not to defend Jenny Lee too hard but she had her own issues that she was dealing with okay <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, so I try not to freeze her.
2: In time,
1: Jenny Lee though. couldn't believe in magic, and
4: she couldn't believe that you were going to bring cookies.
2: She
5: couldn't believe in and you. And it
4: was. It was like the what are you going to bring? People yeah. started getting oh, really competitive bringing McDonald's fries yeah. in. I
5: was like, oh, <laughs> yes. When people brought in McDonald's, you were like, oh, game was, over. Uh,
3: yeah, I had a kid in my first grade class. Oh,
4: his name was Thorin to begin with, oh. and he brought sushi. Like it was, what? it was like um, avocado. I mean, it was a roll. It was a Mackey yeah. roll for first grade. Yes, in uh, Kalamazoo. Yes, uh-huh. oh. uh. Kalamazoo is a very progressive liberal place. I feel so like that was, would
5: make you less popular. It, it as did first grade. Okay, we did. Yeah. okay. Yeah. Cool. It did. Thorin, uh, yeah, yeah,
4: cool. Thorin left the school shortly after that. Oh my well, God. a couple. What is oh, Thorin? Not of is that, that right? Norwegian?
5: It sounds Norwegian,
4: or it's just hipster like Dylan. Or Whoa! It sounds long for
5: Thor.
2: <laughs> or so. hipster parents are like, "You're gonna bring the sushi in for your first grade treat." <laughs> you
4: crazy. know, yeah. some parents who didn't weren't educated in the public s- school system here don't understand the rituals and traditions or how important they are. So in my case, the example was Valentine's Day cards and things that you're supposed to hand out to the whole class. And my mom was like, this is such bullshit. Can we go and wait the day after Valentine's Day and buy the stuff on sale at Walgreens? And I was like, no, you're missing the point. It has to be on Valentine's Day. And she was like, well, why? And and why is everyone handing out the same cards? Like, it makes right. no sense. Yeah. Well, you can't be the kid who doesn't hand out the same yeah. cards. right.
5: Mm-hmm. right. Yeah,
2: it's, it's a lot about sameness, right? And it's a lot about, totally. like, I have to match these birthday treats because if I don't, I'm going to be a social pariah yeah, because they. And it's that serious. And they make it that, the when I say they, I mean the other students mm-hmm. make it that serious. because that, And that's kind of why I talk about um, the other parents not being friendly to my parents because my parents would show up. At first, like first, second, third grade, they would show up to stuff, and my parents look very Puerto Rican. Like they are Puerto Rican, and so they (laughs) so like they walk into a room of white parents who are like, you know, they are the minority by far. And I remember my mom trying really hard to be friends with this one girl, Lily's mom, who just like completely wrote her off. And like the the analysis I got later from my mom when I was older, but like, you know, she was like, I tried. Like I tried to go and be friends with those kids' parents, but they were all assholes. Mm-hmm. And like I didn't want you hanging out with their kids mm-hmm. because their kids were assholes. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> it wasn't until I got to high school and there was people had started sort of coming into their own and having this feeling of like, I don't want to be like my asshole parents, I'm gonna be my own which I I did, too, to a certain degree. Right. Mm -hmm. But like it's that whole grammar school, elementary school time period is just like it's it's, you're you're playing out the politics that your parents would be playing out if they were in the room. I mean, I will say that Chicago high school kids were not as woke as they are now when I was in high school between (laughs) 2003 and 2007. Uh And the thing is, is that there are a handful of people who I went to grade school with who I see now on Facebook who are, like, not assholes anymore. And I'm like, so can I freeze you in time if, like, Kate Evans, who brought cookies from Swedish Bakery, is now actually a really dope person? And, Mm -hmm. like, you know, we're, like, actual friends on Facebook, right? Well, and in the same—I mean, I don't know what she was like then, but— like Paul said, if they're fifth graders, too, they're just trying to do the same thing. Yeah. You know, it's like...
5: Yeah. It's like, you mean people grow from fifth grade? Right. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Some don't. Some don't. <laughs> think, yeah. Yeah. Well, and
1: when that reference came up, what I thought in my own mind is, Swedish bakery's closed. Yeah. Oh. And since the baker is open. Oh. Yeah.
4: yeah. Yeah. But I think I like the... I appreciate the point about times changing because... When we were in high school, if you think about it, it was okay and legitimate and socially acceptable to say things like, that's gay. Yeah. Is a pejorative term.
2: <laughs> yeah. Kids and I still cringe. say it. Yeah. It's, that still, still happens it. now. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. I just I do a five day sleepaway camp with my nonprofit that I work yeah. at, and it's for queer kids. Okay. So, this is 70 LGBT students yeah. still using the word gay as stupid. Yeah. And they use and it too? Not all of them, oh. but like a handful <laughs> who are like maybe from areas in more right. rural parts of the state. We're talking about like all the way south, like at the very tip, people yeah. are coming up for this camp. And so they still have the cultural – what's culturally accepted around them still relates to them because they're immersed in it, right? And so like right. it, it's about – Yes, it's about like growth and time changing and it's also about like, yeah. some of these folks are still coming from places where mm-hmm. racial slurs are used in every other sentence yeah. or like, or gay is used as or stupid or and, or. Retarded. Or retarded. Yeah, I have right. people, people say, say Jew mm, down to me still. I, and I'm yeah. like, that's
1: still a thing. Oh yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> Not that. <laughs> the Second City Training Center proudly sponsors the good stuff here at personal disclosures. Second City Training Center gives people a chance to have fun, go bold, and find they're funny. Whether it's improv to storytelling, or writing to acting, or stand-up to music, you'll find a perfect class at secondcity.com. slash TC, Or if you're just wanting to do what we're doing on this podcast, go to secondcity.com slash online and register. I'd like to introduce to you Julie Bashkin, our producer. Julie has a great story about adolescent angst, uh, being like a Russian thug in the Chicago suburbs. This is like before she goes corporate and gets the doctorate and all. So she has a story and a half, this one. And mainly she just kept to herself. She kept her head down, did a lot of reading, and kept her mouth shut because her mother did all the talking. And she's one hell of a, a writer. She never thought about it, but now I'm never gonna get rid of her.
4: May 1989. Upon arrival in America at age seven, My first interaction in English was at O'Hare Airport with my two male second cousins with strange names I could hardly pronounce. Myron and Perry Perlman didn't speak a word of Russian, so they shoved a Kit Kat bar into my hands, the universal sign for Welcome to America, and proceeded to ignore me for most of my childhood. It was in the nicest way possible, considering how much I cramped their style. I sat silently in their basement, reading a nerdy classic like Huck Finn translated into Russian on most Saturday nights during family gatherings, not speaking their language, English at first, and then boy later on. As other kids came over, I was the outsider who didn't understand trading baseball cards. Dude, that's just my cousin. She's Russian and doesn't really understand what we tell her. The Ida Crown School only had capacity in their third-grade classroom, and with only one month left of the school year, I was placed there. Apparently, it did not matter that I had only attended three months of first grade in Minsk and had spent the past year in a makeshift refugee camp in Italy, skipping what would have been second grade. I was well on my way to get the best Hebrew and secular education the Orthodox Jewish community of Roger Park, Chicago, could offer. The Orthodox Jews were so excited at the possibility of gaining new members, they offered free schooling, food, clothing, furniture, and other aid to all Russian Jewish immigrants. There was only one flaw in their plan. Almost all the Russians were atheists, and they had absolutely zero interest in the Jewish religion and community, aside from the perceived prestige involved in sending their kids to Jewish private schools because of their fear of the blacks and Mexicans they saw in the public school system. My Jewish education lasted only until the end of the school year, and in the span of only one month, I was kicked out of school three times. First, for dressing risque, as my dress only went below the knees and didn't reach my ankles. The second time, I was kicked out, along with everyone else at the school, when a teacher discovered that the Russian kids had butter on their homemade salami sandwiches, so the whole school was shut down and fumigated as traif had seeped into the kosher kitchen. I didn't know anyone at the school, but I had already developed a very keen awareness that because I was an immigrant child, I was different, inferior, and not even a real Jew. As a passive, docile, and agreeable child, I mostly did what I was told without questioning it and just waited and hoped that at some point I would learn proper American etiquette, at which point I would be accepted by my teachers, other students, my cousins. So the third time I was kicked out of school was a real surprise to everyone. I was at my Orthodox teacher's house during Shabbat, the day of rest, when she commanded me to go next door and ask the Shabbos Goyim, derogatory word for non-Jew, to come in and turn the lights on, because, as she claimed, God forbids this action on the day of rest, and if we violate God's wishes, we will be punished. Confused, I protested. But I thought Jews didn't believe in hell like the Christians do, and if we will be punished, why won't the Christian neighbors also be punished by the same God, since you tell me there's only one God? My obedience had limits, and I drew the line at logical inconsistencies and contradictory statements that just plain didn't make any sense. I was not going to sit back and take this like a dummy. When my mom picked me up, the teacher suggested that perhaps a Jewish education was not the right fit for me. Having stumped the teacher, I decided I had won my first real argument with an adult. And so, having gained confidence, I satisfactorily concluded I would no longer be a wallflower. This marked the beginning of a rebellious disregard for rules and authority figures. And so my parents fled to the northern suburbs to escape the feared Chicago public schools and their black gang members and to be close to the Perlmans as well as the studious Asians. I did not know a soul at the Glen Grove Elementary School in Glenview. And unfortunately, it turns out my parents didn't understand that Myron and Perry lived in unincorporated Glenview and attended a different school district with the other Russians. At this point, I was the outsider in Myron and Perry's basement, not allowed to join the Nintendo game playing. Dude, that's just my cousin. She doesn't really get how to play video games. I was unlike any of the kids in my school and could find absolutely nothing in common with them. I was picked up on the bus from the brown apartment complex that housed all minorities. I showed up at the bus stop and hand-me-down long denim skirts and long-sleeved shirts donated to my family by the Ark, the Orthodox Social Services Agency. My grandmother would yell at my mom, quit dressing her like a frummy. that's derogatory for pious Jew. Everyone will think she's Amish. I didn't speak English, didn't know who New Kids on the Block or Cabbage Patch dolls were, was scared of the slap-on wrist bracelets all the kids were swinging at their arms, And on days when I didn't stand in line for all the kids to make fun of me for receiving my free lunch ticket, I pulled out my thermos of chicken soup and leftover meatballs from last night's dinner. And I was bad at school to boot, which was somehow a mystery to my parents and teachers. They couldn't understand why I was slow to pick up simple material, because being thrown right into fourth grade with absolutely no preparation in grade one through three seemed like a recipe for success to them. (laughs) By junior high, I was the outsider in Myron Perry's basement, because I didn't understand the humor on Saturday Night Live, or why dunking a basketball during the NBA All-Star Games was impressive. Dude, that is just my cousin. She kind of just sits there reading books. In school, I was an awkward loner. Academically, I taught myself and caught up in all subjects, except English, where I was tracked in ESL seemingly forever. Never having played sports growing up, I was picked last on every team, Not allowed to do other activities like drama, art, or band, I couldn't even join the quirky outcasts. My parents never joined a temple, so I was excluded from all bar and bat mitzvahs. At first, nobody made fun of me, they just ignored me. But then, at the end of eighth grade, the bullying started. A few blonde girls made fun of my old navy sweatshirt while they dressed in preppy Gap outfits and Birkenstocks or alternative Doc Martens, which at $100 per pair were about as attainable to me as couture purchased at Paris Fashion Week. They called me the Russian spy, physically crowding me out of the cafeteria at lunchtime. By the end of the first day of high school, I noticed my main bully from eighth grade, Sarah, a tall and athletic blonde on the swim team, was in almost all of my classes. So as she sat in front of me in French class, I passed her a note. I don't think you really wanted to bully me at Springman. I'm coming over after school and we're doing our nails and calling Mike because I'm pretty sure he likes you. And just like that, within one day, I forever changed my life and my bully became my best friend. I quickly dumped my Russian immigrant loser friends. I made it. <laughs> I, no longer, I no longer needed those petty criminals and their shoplifted Sally Beauty Supply Nail Polish from the second tier immigrant golf mill mall. I was buying Manic Panic purple hair dye at Clark and Belmont in the city. And this is how I became an insider in Myron and Perry's basement, because now not only was I no longer weird and we had common ground and interests, but I had friends and my friends were hot and their friends started to show some interest in me. Now I heard them say to their friends, dude, no, that's my cousin. The summer after freshman year in high school, I went to debate camp at the University of Iowa with my new friends. We decided everyone at the camp was a nerd while we were hot shit. So we found some wrestlers and flirted our way into an invite to a party. We would impress the nerds by telling them we had athlete boyfriends, an exaggeration that was about as far from the truth as my newly found pretentious American rebel punk identity. We decided to dye our hair purple with our manic panic temporary washout color, which we saved for when our parents wouldn't be around. We made one slight mistake that evening instead of washing it out in the sink, we showered it off. The next morning, when we showed up at lecture with not only our hair pink and purple, but also our bodies pink and purple, the entire lecture hall full of our peers, our college coaches, and our teachers laughed at us. But it didn't matter. At this point, I was able to laugh at myself, and I was no longer invisible. I had comrades in the trenches with me, and the three of us had matching pink and purple haired keychain trolls that forever united us in our ridiculous attempts to look cool. I realized tables can turn very quickly, bullies can become best friends, nerds can pick up jocks, and absolutely any and all rules were meant to be broken.
3: One of my favorite parts is the repetition of the dude that's just my cousin. Mm-hmm. I, To me, it's like the chorus in a song. It just sort of like grabs your ear and and keeps you interested in in the forward progression of the story. Yeah. I would have loved to slow down on the bullying part, especially when you flip the bully. That was a really advanced Jedi mind trick with the, (laughs) I don't think you meant to bully me.
1: That decision is the swing pin of the whole story. It's when she finally decides she's going to be seen, things change. I like that Jedi mind trick idea. I like the part where your parents don't know enough to put you in the right school district, and at the same time, they can still dictate what is important for you to learn and what isn't. It's like that push-pull of, do these people know anything? And that idea that they're really lost... Or also maybe the years of
3: knowing that you're, you're not quite fitting in, while you're sitting back being an observer, your ability to turn the tables is because you're able to identify. You didn't jump up from like, oh, the other Russian kids who also are outcasts. You jumped like five levels. You had to look around to say, them, they're my ticket to debate club, manic panic,
1: wrestling party. The old world just kind of disappears. Mm-hmm. All the references change from Russian, immigration, to manic panic, etc.
5: I did like the fact, though, that the Russian kind of got brought back in um, with referring to her new friends as comrades. I thought that <laughs> yeah, was very yeah, telling yeah, using yeah. that word. That was word.
3: nice language. Yeah. That's right.
4: This is Julie Bashkin, the executive producer. Anyone can and should do what we're doing here. Visit our website, personaldisclosures.com, to make your own disclosures. We have celebrity comedians and best-selling authors who will work with you individually. Whether you're an experienced writer or have never attempted to do this in your life, we can make you funny, smart, and interesting on paper. And now, some more provocative stories.
1: Our next story is from Paul. I think you'll recognize his voice (laughs) right away. Paul's integrity and I think that's what you would call it, has everything to do with being a proud and connected member of his Korean community and a faithful son to his parents and a good brother to Michelle, his sister. I mean, there's nothing phony or broken about these people. And at the same time, he suffers from feeling very, very different in his suburban school settings and, of course, in his sexual orientation and attraction to men. So this particular story is a classic example of what it's like to be so smart that you can figure out how to assimilate, even when... It's the last thing in the world you're actually doing.
5: This is called Mrs. Kim's Popcorn Balls. Mm -hmm. Growing up, my mother would make a home-cooked meal for our family almost every single night. She would come home from work at 5 p.m., and my father would come home at 6 p.m. During that one-hour window, she was always able to whip up from scratch a delicious Korean meal no restaurant could properly replicate. Because of the time constraint, my mom made sure to fully utilize her two most valuable resources, me and my sister, Michelle. (laughs) Before my mom's five o'clock arrival, Michelle and I had to have already steeped the tea, made the rice, and set the table. Sometimes my mom would call home before leaving work to have one of us take a whole fish or squid or whatever was on the evening's menu out of the freezer. Once the cooking started, Michelle and I were the sous chefs, or more accurately, the prep cooks. My mom would bark orders from across the kitchen, and we had to fulfill each request obediently and diligently. Get me a bunch of green onions from the fridge. Refill the sesame oil. Bring the garbage can over here. All right, now take out the garbage. Peel this onion. Peel this entire head of garlic. As a grade schooler, I can't imagine this was any fun at all, but I didn't think of it that way. It never felt like a choice, but it also never felt forced. In my mind, This was just a part of my duty as a family member, and there was never really any resentment that materialized as a result. In fact, I think I mostly enjoyed it. Well, maybe except for the part when I had to peel an entire head of garlic. I still hate peeling garlic to this day. More than anything else at the time, food was the entry point from which I was able to understand my Koreanness. I wasn't particularly connected to my parents' homeland in any other way. It would not be until after my freshman year of high school when I would travel there for the first time. All I knew was that I loved Korean food. In the fourth grade, my teacher decided to do a class project where each student would have to go home, write out a family recipe, and bring it back to class. She would then assemble a cookbook out of all of our family recipes and make copies for everyone in the class. I was excited. I wasn't sure which one of my favorite Korean dishes I would feature, so that weekend while my mom cooked, I brought my notebook with me. On that particular Saturday evening, my mom was making a spicy seafood stew. Because she never uses a recipe, it was difficult for me to write down all of the ingredients and steps on demand. Plus, I realized I only knew the Korean words for a lot of the components. There was kochukaru, which is red pepper flakes, kamaboko, Japanese-style fish cake, myolchi, dried anchovies, This wasn't going to work, was it? How would I be able to properly document the creation of this dish? Even if I did, what white suburban fourth grader in their right mind would want to make it? (laughs) It wasn't just the realization that many of the ingredients weren't available at the Dominic's Finer Foods down the road, but being one of the few Asian kids at school, my fourth grade self somehow knew this was not the route to take. I knew I was different. That was clear to me at an early age. But the trick was to not let on I knew I was different. As any kid would, I went through great pains to fit in as best as I could. I wore bugle boy jeans, collected baseball cards, and sported a side spike hairdo that was apparently fashionable at the time. (laughs) Despite my best efforts, there would inevitably be that kid who would come up to me during recess and chant, Chinese, Japanese, Sandy knees, look at these. Accompanied by a pantomime of squinty eyes pointing upwards, representing Chinese, obviously, and then downwards, representing Japanese, of course, followed by a rubbing of their knees, still not sure what sandy knees have to do with being Asian, and concluded with the pulling of the front of their shirt to mimic breasts. Those were the these I was cued to look at. I do realize the words knees and these exist in this little ditty only because they rhyme with the words Chinese and Japanese. But like most people who choose to chant nonsensical things to try to hurt others who are not like them, I knew then, like I know now, that these are the tactics of those who are ignorant. In some ways, I felt sorry for them. Sorry that they felt compelled to go out of their way to make someone feel bad about their race. Sorry that they didn't know that I'm neither Chinese nor Japanese. (laughs) Sorry that they would not be given the opportunity to experience the glory that is my mom's delicious spicy seafood stew. One problem, though, I still had to bring a so-called family recipe to class. In desperation, I scoured the house, knowing full well we did not own any proper cookbooks. Then I found it. We had recently bought a new microwave, and sitting on top of it was the user manual. Inside, there were some microwave-friendly recipes ready to be plagiarized. I'm sure it was <laughs> slim pickings, and I honestly can't recall what all the options were. Maybe things like beef stroganoff and casseroles and other things that we don't eat, but I do remember the one I did choose, popcorn balls. It was the only one I could imagine myself actually making and eating, and it was safe, generic even. I copied down all of the information and titled the recipe, Mrs. Kim's Popcorn Balls. (laughs) On the day my teacher passed out the cookbooks to the class, I remember hoping no one would ask me about my recipe. What would I say? I didn't actually try to make the popcorn balls myself, so I had no idea what they even tasted like. (laughs) The teacher gave us a few minutes to flip through the cookbook, and over the general murmur, there would be an occasional sound of excitement over a recipe that sounded good to someone. Maybe it was macaroni and cheese or some kind of cookie. These were all considered foreign foods as far as my house was concerned. Just when I thought I was in the clear, one of my classmates approached me and said, I love popcorn balls. I can't wait to go home to try this recipe with my mom. I breathed a sigh of relief. I knew I had made the right choice.
1: I just love that opening because it really made me understand how much you enjoyed being Korean. And then the second half of it is all about assimilation or
4: having to make a sacrifice,
1: some kind of a bargain, a cultural substitute
4: so I obviously can relate to so much of this and the biggest part that I took away from it is the constant tension that an immigrant child faces between navigating or negotiating two worlds, one in which you feel like an outsider in the home because that's old world and you're now new world and you have very little identification with the culture of your parents. You've never even been to their country. On the other hand, when you're at school, you have that same tension because you're an outsider. You don't quite belong to the majority group in the school. And so you're constantly negotiating. But actually, I am American, but I still enjoy Korean food. And the best part of it was that it was the bullies who were the fools who wouldn't enjoy, they wouldn't be able to enjoy the Korean food that you enjoyed. And then ultimately, at the end, it all comes together where you're victorious in assimilating and fitting in and still maintaining your Korean identity. The Second City
1: Training Center proudly sponsors the good stuff of personal disclosures. The Second City Training Center gives people a chance to have fun, Go bold and find they're funny. If you're not near a training center, then go to secondcity.com slash online and you can register. Next up, we have one of the most popular writers in the country at the moment, if I do say so myself. None other than Roxanne Gay. In fact, she was a professor at a university. She wrote for everyone from Salon to McSweeney's to Tin House and Opines for the New York Times. But her real success, it seems to me anyway, is based on the three books that she's authored in I would say pretty rapid succession. So Roxanne's working on some TV pro and movie projects and had enough time and energy to be a part of our podcast. So we're very fortunate. And I think you're gonna
0: really enjoy her read. Her voice is amazing. Black in Middle America. I spent five years in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, a place I didn't even know existed until I moved there to attend graduate school. I lived in a town of 4,000 people. The next town over, over the Portage Bridge, had 7,000 people. In my town, The street signs were both in English and Finnish because the town had the highest concentration of Finns outside of Finland. We were so far north that my blackness was more a curiosity than threat. I was a woman out of place, but I did not always feel unsafe. There were abandoned copper mines and the vast majority of Lake Superior and so much forest cloaking everything. During fall deer hunting, so much venison. The winters were endless, snow in unfathomable quantities, the aching whine of snowmobiles. There was loneliness. There were my friends who made the isolation bearable. There was a man who made everything beautiful. What I cannot forget is my landlady, who rented my apartment to me over the phone and who, when she first met me, told me I didn't sound like a colored girl. In rural Illinois, I lived in a town surrounded by cornfields, In an apartment complex next to an open meadow, the sight of ambition thwarted when the developer who built the complex ran out of money. The meadow was wide and green, bordered by trees. In the fall, I often saw a family of deer galloping across the field. They reminded me of Michigan. Especially early on, they made me think, I want to go home, and I would startle that my heart, my body, considered such an unexpected place home the man didn't follow. The man didn't understand why I would not, could not, raise brown children in the only place he had ever called home. There was more to it, but there was also that. At the end of every summer, a farmer threshed the meadow and hauled the hay away. I stood on my balcony and watched as he worked, methodically making the land useful. I had a job, I kept telling myself. At least I had a job. This town was bigger. I nurtured a very small dream, to live in a place where I could get my hair done, without knowing if that dream would ever come true. There was a Starbucks, but not much else. There was loneliness. There were a few very, very unsuitable men who made everything ugly. We were three hours from Chicago, so my blackness was less of a curiosity, more of a threat. And there were the black students on campus, the nerve of them, daring to pursue higher education." In the local newspaper, residents wrote angry letters about a new criminal element, the scourge of youthful Black ambition, Black joy. In my more generous moments, I tried to believe the locals were using anger to mask their fear of living in a dying town in a changing world. Four years later, I moved to central Indiana, a much bigger town, a small city really. In the first few weeks, I was racially profiled in an electronics store. Living here never got better, though local acquaintances often tried to tell me, in different ways, not all Hoosiers, when I lamented how uncomfortable and unhappy I was. I am. There is loneliness. The Confederacy is, inexplicably, alive and well here. There is a man who drives around in an imposing black pickup truck with white supremacist flags flying from the rear. My dental hygienist thinks I live in a bad part of town. There are no bad parts of town here. Not really. In the local newspaper, residents write angry letters about a new criminal element in town. People from Chicago, they say, which is code for black people. On campus, pro-life students chalk messages on sidewalks like Planned Parenthood, number one killer of black lives, and hands up, don't abort. My blackness is, again, a threat. I don't feel safe, but I know how lucky I am, which leaves me wondering how unsafe black people leading more precarious lives must feel. Friends in cities have long asked me how I do it, spending year after year in these small towns that are so inhospitable to blackness. I say I'm from the Midwest, which I am, and that I have never lived in a big city, which is also true. I say that the Midwest is home, even if this home does not always embrace me, and that the Midwest is a vibrant, necessary place. I say I can be a writer anywhere, and as an academic, I go where the work takes me, or I said these things. Now... I am simply weary, I say. I hate it here, and a rush of pleasure fills me. I worry that I can't be happy or feel safe anywhere. But then, I travel to places where my blackness is unremarkable, where I don't feel like I have to constantly defend my right to breathe, to be. I am nurturing a new dream, of a place I already think of as home, bright sky, big ocean. I know the where and the why, and even the who might be waiting there. I just need to say when.
4: So this episode was Immigration, Assimilation, and Alienation. Originally, the episode came together from my obvious own experiences of assimilation and being an immigrant kid who was excluded and taunted and bullied as a child. And Vince's and Paul's experiences were all similar in that we grew up with parents who were treated as an other. And it's obviously very apropos to what's going on currently in our dialogue about immigration and how we treat foreigners, but none of it compares to Roxanne Gay's experience in what she describes in the Midwest and what it's like to be treated as an other or the alienation one feels being Black in a country where one doesn't necessarily have to be an immigrant to be treated like an alien. Did I make false promises? No, I do not
1: think I did. I think we heard some pretty damn good stories about what it's like to be different.
4: This one in particular was especially near and dear to my heart, obviously, almost in a selfish way, I may have created it. A lot of the angst that happened to me in adolescence didn't just come with the typical puberty, but it came with feeling like an outsider and kids being really, really quite mean to me. And I remember the feeling of helplessness and and just kind of self-pity, like the woe is me, because I couldn't change my situation. I couldn't make myself less Russian. I couldn't make my parents fit in and be more American. And it just kind of was magnified when I listened to the same themes in Vince's, yeah, and it it you know it was heartbreaking for me when I was listening to Vinces to imagine any child feeling that way, but it also brought me back to kind of that despair that I felt as a child, but it also was it's you know kind of a story of hope and turning things around, yep. and you know maybe maybe kids who go through hardships of this nature have a certain motivator or a certain specific thing that kind of creates the adult personality that they are. Yeah, And I carried that feeling of being a stranger, feeling like a stranger everywhere I go. I certainly still have that in my adulthood. I don't quite fit into the business world. I don't quite fit into the creative world. I didn't feel like I was at home when I went back to Belarus because I was an American at that point. Um, and And maybe everyone can relate to feeling like an outsider. Mm-hmm. In, in certain cases, are feeling like they don't belong. The
1: more you can own your difference, or at least the feelings of difference, the more specific your writing gets, and the more particular the specifics are, the more universal you become. And it turns out that, no, you don't necessarily want to be like everyone else. But God, who doesn't want to be universal?
4: This podcast was created by me, Julie Bashkin, in partnership with Alana Kipp and Nancy Beckett, and the Second City Training Center. Sound engineering, recording, and original music scores created by Gravity Studios in Chicago. Visit personaldisclosures.com for tips and tricks on how to make your own personal disclosures and to access exclusive personal training and group events with famous best selling authors and comedians you've seen on TV. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, where you may find embarrassing vintage photos from our youth. And please, share with your friends and leave a review on Stitcher and iTunes. It helps us out tremendously to get the word out and to bring you more laughs and maybe even some tears every week with new episodes.